Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Stupid new TV. Why is Kathy Lee Gifford talking so funny? Oh, you got one of those new Samsung sets that translates everything into Esperanto. Do you know Esperanto? Uh, only vaguely. I'm not really a big Eagles fan. <sighs> That's Desperado. Esperanto is an invented language. Oh yeah, that's uh, that's the one um, that's spoken by Lieutenant Worf and people who've never had sex, right? No, no, that's Klingon. Esperanto is very easy to learn. No, not for me. I'd probably have to do one of those, you know, thirty-day immersion programs where you live with a family in Esperantonia. No, th- there is no Esperantonia. Not anymore. Serves them right for bombing Cleveland. No. It it never existed. Esperanto is meant to be a universal language, intended to foster better communication. Yeah, that's what they're telling us now, and I still don't think they should have a nuclear program. Today on the show, will Esperanto rise again? And now, the guy who knows all the good Esperantonian restaurants, Colin McEnroe. And the Esperantonian wines to go with the food, too. So, yes, today we are going to talk about Esperanto. Will it rise again? Well, it never really went away. It's been sort of living maybe a little bit out of your sight. Uh, But there are amazing things happening right now, a lot of them driven by the the digital revolution. So, uh, first of all, we're going to acquaint you a little bit with with Esperanto and then uh, tell you why more people suddenly are wanting to learn this language and finding new ways to learn it uh, as well. So, in studio uh, with me is Humphrey. Tonkin. He's the uh, university professor of humanities at the University of Hartford. He's also the former president of the Universal Esperanto Association. He was like king of Esperanto at one point, uh, although they don't really sort of use those terms. And then joining us a little bit later is uh, Aaron Piotowski, an administrator at Lernu.net. This is one of the places you can go to learn Esperanto. And Chuck Smith, the founder of the Esperanto Wikipedia. Uh, that's an entire Wikipedia uh, in Esperanto. He's also the team leader of Duolingo's Esperanto course, which is one of the main kind of um, inflection points, I guess, that we'll be talking about today. But first, people may have some vague idea of what Esperanto is, but my guess is that it is indeed a vague idea. So, Humphrey, uh, begin just by telling us, reminding us uh, of the history of Esperanto. Well, Colin, that's needless to say a huge topic, yes. and I'll try to reduce it to a couple of sentences. The language was was created in the year 1887, by a guy called Zamenhof, who was, um, uh, he lived in Poland. He was Jewish, which is important because um, in in part, in creating the language, he's, he was reacting to negative feelings, anti-Semitism in, um, in Russia at the time. And he felt, not entirely accurately, that um, that if we all understood one another better, we would get on better. Not, of course, realizing that actually frequently we do understand people with whom we quarrel. Um, but the basic idea was that that people would have a language that they could use for international communication, and it would be a simple language, a language that was easy to learn. Um, the world then was very different from what it is now, but Esperanto seems over the years to have sort of repurposed itself and um, 
And as we look at the situation today, we find that there are large numbers of people who apparently have some knowledge of this language. So it has behind it about 130 years of practical use. Um, by the way, as we go along here, here if you have your, uh, any questions, uh, call us at 860-275-7266. Specify whether you want to be your questions to be answered in English or Esperanto, 860-275-7266. Uh, or you may tweet us at WNPR, Colin. We are not tweeting in Esperanto today, um, although it's, that would be something to go for at some point. Um, so and one of the, to me, one of the proofs that Zamenhof was onto something is the number of tyrants and tyrannical regimes that have strenuously objected to Esperanto, which is pretty much all of them. That is true. Yeah. Actually, right at this minute, I'm translating a book on mm. this topic um, that was written by a German historian about the persecution of Esperantists under Hitler and under Stalin um, for reasons that that actually, you know, I was about to say for reasons that escaped me, but actually I fully understand why they did it. Mm -hmm. um, they both of them persecuted Esperanto speakers pretty systematically. Although I read somewhere that Stalin was for 10 seconds uh, intrigued by it uh, and, then, and then got off it pretty quickly. So it's alleged, though I don't know how much evidence there is mm -hmm. out there about that. Also in Imperial Japan, I think uh, they were, the Esperantists were, uh, were persecuted. And then Khomeini was another one of these guys who got, I think, briefly inter interested in Esperanto and then figured out that the Baha'i, because they are idealistic, like Esperanto, and he can't like anything, he couldn't like anything that they liked, right? Well, that's sort of the point. I think, you know, I think the fact is that, um, that people who run countries mm. somehow imagine that Esperanto might be useful to them in some way. But the reality is that Esperanto and the Esperanto community sort of denies the existence of countries, um, I don't feel when I'm speaking Esperanto with, with people who speak the language that I'm an American or a Brit. Um, I'm sort of a piece of that community. So it's like um, it's in many respects like a truly international community. Um, how, how did you come to join this community? How did, you, you were young when you learned this, right? Yes, I was, what, 14, 15, something like that. Mm. And, um, and I got interested in the language in part because I happened to have a particularly tyrannical German teacher who beat up on me um, without let up uh, because somehow or other I couldn't get my adjectives to agree with my nouns, which I didn't regard as terribly important at the time. <laughs> I guess I still don't. Um, I speak fluent German with no endings, and somehow the Germans seem to understand me. But, um, but at any rate, he threw me out of his class because I was so badly behaved, and I was so angry at this that I said, I'm going to learn a language just to show him that if I can't learn his German, I'll learn something else. And being prudent, I looked for the world's easiest language. Yeah, and this is supposed to be an, uh, an incredibly easy language to learn, right? It's pretty easy to learn. That doesn't mean, of course, that you can just kind of pour it into your ear and there mm. it is. You have to practice. Um, there is a vocabulary that you have to learn. Mm. But the vocabulary is pretty small and it's extremely flex flexible. So, so you can do a lot with a little. And there, first of all, there. I mean, every language is idiomatic and full of all kinds of strange, accidental, accidental things. I use, I've always understood, anyway, that, that that's all been kind of ironed. Well, it never had to be ironed out. It was never there in Esperanto. Well, yeah, that's only partly true, though, because the reality is that if you keep using a language, you're going to come up with it idiomatic gets idiomatic, expressions. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. bound to happen. Um, what does happen, I think, among speakers of Esperanto is that their desire to communicate mm -hmm. makes them try to avoid using the language in idiosyncratic ways. 
So, so while there are plenty of idioms of one kind or another, um, we do tend to try to keep them under control at the very least. Well, I mean, I, I wonder also, and I'm sure there's been all kinds of scholarship on this, that idioms and things that are that could be grouped in there, linguistic, linguistic idiosyncrasies, probably to a certain degree grow out of culture, right? It, it all The language unfolds in a place. The place has things happening in it. Uh, the place has um, stories and people and things like that that begin to fill up the language, and that may contort the language a little bit into idioms. And, and the fact that Esperanto isn't located in a particular place, that may serve it well in that regard. Well, though, on the other hand, what, you've, what you touch on is what is a huge controversy among Esperanto speakers, namely, is Esperanto without culture, whatever that means, um, or does Esperanto have a distinctive culture? And I would argue that it has a distinctive culture. Um, you You can't start writing poetry in Esperanto or publishing novels in Esperanto or using Esperanto for ordinary communication without creating a set of a, a set of cultural norms, mm. one way or another. And people do all those things. Who's the Scottish writer? William Auld? William Auld, yeah. right, yeah. Uh, who, I mean, he's been nominated for the Nobel Prize for works written in... A in. hugely talented guy, mm. yeah. But, you know, that also is a sort of a problem because the very fact that Esperanto is, is, is relatively easy, relatively different from other languages, means that you can do things, in, particularly in Esperanto poetry, mm. that don't translate easily. Mm-hmm. I spend a lot of my time translating one way or another, and I have a lot of difficulty translating Esperanto poetry into anything that resembles English. It's very hard to do. Huh. Um, for people who've never heard it, I don't know, but before we went on the air, I asked you to tell us in Esperanto what you had for breakfast. So, so, so tell us in Esperanto what you had for breakfast. Mi facte ne rapportis pri tio kion mi havis por la matin manjo. Mi facte neis se mi juste memoras ke mi entute manjis matin manjo. So, so I didn't tell you what yeah. I ate for breakfast. In fact, I think I denied eating breakfast. <laughs> um, the um, you, the other thing that you told us that uh, intrigued us is that that Kion Wolf's name, name, the way it's spelled anyway in Esperanto, means everything. Although it wouldn't be pronounced that way, right? That is correct. C H I O N means uh, means everything in Esperanto. Now, when we see that Colin, a, by the way, on yeah. the other hand, doesn't appear to mean anything at all. It doesn't what seem are to we mean to any, do? anything to anybody uh, ever? Um, but um, well, so when we say that it's easy to learn, this is also, I assume, because things like agreement, gender, case are, are kept as. I mean, why is it easy to learn? Mostly, actually, because you can form words. Mm. Um, if you take a take a term like, um, of course, I'm not going to be able to think of a good term right now. Take a take a term like transition. Mm-hmm. In English, you can form from transition um, also a verb to mm. transition. You can create an adjective transitional mm. um, and transitionally while you're at it. Mm. So you can create a whole series of words out of a single root. Mm. Esperanto functions according to that principle all across the board. So if you have the root, mm-hmm. you can use it in all kinds of different ways. You know, when you talk about the culture to, uh, of, um, uh, of Esperanto, culture can mean a bunch of different things. But one of the things that it does mean is the way the group of people in aggregate behave with one another. And, and my sense is that there is kind of an Esperanto personality. or an Esper- I mean, as you travel around the world, uh, maybe personality is the wrong word, but are there things that Esperantists have in common? Ah, yes, there probably are. Not all of them are good things, by the way. Um, <laughs> oh, of course they are. <laughs> it's worth pointing out yeah. that, um, that 
that there are two kinds of people who get interested in Esperanto. There are people like you and me, Colin. Mm -hmm. And then there's a collection of people out there who are crazy language nuts. Mm -hmm. And they get really enthusiastic about language. Um, Perhaps I'm somehow or other misrepresenting these people. But but for me, the interest in Esperanto doesn't lie in the language, even Mm -hmm. though I'm a linguist. Um, it lies in the in the ability to communicate with people who, frankly, are different from me mm-hmm. and see the world in a different way. Uh, one of the great problems we all of us have is that we're locked into our particular way of looking at the world. And if you can be in contact with people who look at the world differently, it has an effect. And I think it's a positive effect. Well, I mean, I'm assuming that um, once you started learning Esperanto as an act of rebellion against your uh, taskmaster of a German teacher, the, there became other reasons. I mean, I, I know you well enough to know that this fa- does your whole life, really. This is facilitated travel. If you arrive almost anywhere, you at least have access to a group of people who have something in common with you. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. When I learned the language, I didn't realize, or I wasn't altogether conscious of the fact that other people spoke it. You know, this was a, this was a task I had set myself. But then when I started using the language, I, um, I initially simply found people in other countries with whom I could correspond the way kids do. And, um, and that grew into an assortment of friendships. It also grew into an urge to travel. Now, this is back in the 1950s. And, um, and I got really interested in Eastern Europe because there were a lot of Esperantists in Eastern Europe. Nobody knew anything about Eastern Europe back then in Britain and certainly not in the United States. And I began to travel to countries in Eastern Europe when I was an undergraduate, essentially. And, um, and that opened up a whole new world for me. And I found that I knew all kinds of things that other people didn't know, that I had experienced things that other people hadn't experienced. And, that I, and, and as a result, I really felt the richer for it. Um, we're going to bring Aaron Piedusky into this conversation in just a second, but I just, just want to say uh, one of the great paradoxes that I discovered in preparing for this show is that uh, during the 50s, while you were doing all that uh, and, and embracing this language of hope and peace, um, the American military uh, was doing these kind of simulated combat exercises, uh, and they wanted to have an enemy a simulated enemy that had a sort of a different, that sounded different, that, you know, had a language barrier that that had to be overcome during interrogations and stuff like that. So their solution, I think they started out with Spanish and maybe decided that was a bad idea, either because Spanish was too hard to learn or maybe just kind of sent a bad signal to all Spanish-speaking countries that we were practicing to defeat uh, an aggressive enemy that spoke Spanish. Anyway, they switched it over to Esperanto. We actually, I actually did Unearth today, this old black and white. I don't know if it's actually a training film or just some kind of maybe even a public affairs film that the army was distributing to the, to, uh, the rest of America. But So uh, here's a little bit of it. Get ready for, for some, I think, bad-sounding Esperanto, too. A la causa por quio tel multas da vi camarados de vi foridas anto vi. This speech in Esperanto, the language of aggressor, is part of the Aggressor Center's training program in developing the concept of a maneuver enemy. The aggressor soldier is provided with identification documents in the Esperanto language. So there you go. That's That was the American military's uh, best use of Esperanto, was to invent an imaginary aggressor enemy. I uh, think, you know, Colin, they probably had a meeting in which they said, whom can we offend and get away with it? <laughs> That's right. 
<laughs> yeah. And the, the Esperanto is terrible. Right. Uh, yeah, no, it sounded it's, – it's, having heard you speak it in the past and other people speak it, I, you can sort of tell it was uh, pretty blunt. Well, uh, Aaron Piotrowski, on that uplifting note, uh, we'd like to add you to this conversation, Aaron Piotrowski, a, an administrator at Learn – am I saying it right? I'm saying LearnNew.net. LearnNew. LearnNew, okay. So explain, LearnNew.net. Yeah, explain what that is. So uh, LearnNew.net is sort of an all-in-one Esperanto learning website, so um, – of course, many of our users use a lot of different learning resources to study the language, but theoretically, you could use LearnNew as a one-stop shop for everything you need to learn the language, and we stay focused around that goal. So we're not a website for informing about Esperanto. We, we stay pretty strictly to teaching the language. So it includes uh, various different courses at different levels, beginner, intermediate, um, it has online forums where you can chat with other users either in Esperanto or if your Esperanto is not good enough in whatever language you speak. Um, has an instant messenger function. You can talk in real time with, with other users. It's uh, text chat and it has a, a dictionary and, and various grammar guides and grammar exercises, reference materials for, for learners to use. And, and uh, I'll ask you the same question I asked Humphrey. How, how is it that you, c- c- that you came to speak this language? Well, you know, it was a similar age. It was around, that. I think I was around 14. Um, and I had a friend, and my friend had parents from two different countries. And so she grew up speaking three languages fluently. And I was jealous of this friend. And I thought, I need, I'm so, I'm so behind. I, I need to learn at least one language fluently. And I could see from, from my sister and from other people who, who took language classes in school, they took French or they took Spanish, and they never actually could speak French or Spanish at the end. So I said, I want to learn a language. I want to learn it to fluency. And I want to actually, you know, really learn it to fluency. And, and I was signed up to take Latin in high school. So <clears throat> I knew that wasn't going to happen. So I decided to pick the easiest. So I picked Esperanto. And, and so... And now I speak it fluently, so I guess it worked. And, but, but there was no LearnU.net for you to learn. So how did you learn? I learned... It was a 10-lesson postal course. Actually, uh, it was the mid-'90s. My family didn't even have Internet access yet. So I did this 10-lesson this postal course. You, you do the lesson, and, and you send your lesson back with a self-addressed stamped envelope, and, and the tutor corrects your lesson and sends it back to you with the corrections and with the next lesson. And so I went through the, it's actually 12 lessons of the 10-lesson course, and that's how I learned. Um, uh, how, how, what's the activity like now at LearnNew.net? Are you, in fact, seeing more people showing up on the site, registering to learn the language? I haven't checked um, the statistics, for example, since Duolingo launched, <laughs> but we've had a pretty good steady increase in users. Um, we've had a few spikes. If something ends up about Esperanto in the news, we often get some kind of spike. Um, but our site has been around for uh, about 10 and a half years now, and we have nearly 200,000 registered users. You know, Humphrey, this brings up a question, which is that my sense is that it's hard to know how many Esperantists there are in the world. I mean, does anybody, I mean, it's hard to count noses, right? That's absolutely right. We don't have a secret handshake. Mm-hmm. If we had a secret handshake, everything would be easy. But, but in reality, of course, um, even defining what a speaker of Esperanto is is problematic. 
How many words do you need to know? Mm. Um, how many verbs do you need to have under your control? How often do you need to use the language? So, um, so even defining um, an Esperantist is hard. If you look at, if you look at traffic on the, on the web and just make a few um, reasonable assumptions, then you end up with, with actually millions of people who at least have some acquaintance with Esperanto. You know, Aaron, I just want to uh, jump on one thing that you said, and we'll also be talking to Chuck a little bit about this, too. But, I mean, one of Esperanto's reputations is that it's, it, it, it has the capacity to kind of prepare you for other languages in the way that you suggested. Um, and, and that, uh, you know, the example, the typical example would be that if you, take, if you studied Esperanto for a year and then studied French or Italian for two years, you'd know more French or Italian at the end of those three years than if you studied that one language, French or Italian, for those three years. Is that kind of what you found? I, I did find that. Um, I studied Esperanto more or less at the same time that I studied Latin in high school. The, I, I wouldn't say the Esperanto helped extremely with the Latin. It helped a little with some of the vocabulary. But I later studied Italian. I have a, a pretty good conversational level of Italian. Um, and it, it was based on one university semester and the rest was self-study. So really, although Esperanto grammar is much easier than Italian grammar and, and much easier than French grammar. I have a, a basic level of French as well. Um, sort of getting an idea for the way that things are put together, getting an idea for how you go about translating your thoughts into a foreign language, that, that you translate what, what you mean, not what you want to say. You can't translate word for word, but you have to translate your meaning, um, avoiding idioms, and simply learning vocabulary. I would say the Esperanto helped out with, with a lot of those things. Because one of the things... There were certain grammatical forms that, that are notoriously difficult, but a couple of key similarities with Esperanto actually helped me get those right more consistently, I would say, than, than a learner of Italian or French who didn't speak Esperanto. What were you going to say? Yeah, I was just going to say that one of the things, of course, that Esperanto does for you is give you a sense of confidence in speaking another language mm -hmm. um, because the threshold at which you can begin to use the language is quite low. Um, you don't need to know don't need to know a lot of the language in order to be able to talk it. Yeah, I think also, Aaron, you're you're a poor control study for this thing because you were also learning Latin, which is I think one of the other great ways to prepare yourself. I was, for but you know, Latin. I don't know. The grammar didn't stick with me. Um, I spend a lot of time memorizing noun declensions. Those are worthless. In, <laughs> for example, French or Italian, those have been dropped from the language. Um, Verb conjugations helped very slightly with just remembering what endings to use. But um, for vocabulary, you know, my Latin vocabulary was mostly revolving around swords and hastening to the battlefield of Gaul so you can slaughter these right. worthless Gauls. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't, I don't think... The four years of Latin, I don't think, really did much for my French or Italian. It really is true that when you're you know, studying uh, first-year Latin, you learn out these sentences. You know, there are some of the soldiers are killing all of the farmers. Um, and then you get your Chase and Phillips first-year Greek, and the first sentence, I think, is, the soul of a man is deathless. And you're thinking, well, okay, those are those two cultures express expressed in their, um, right. their first-year language books. All right, we have to take a quick break. We want to add Chuck Smith to this conversation. We'll come back after this. 
So now you're using hand signals for because that's more Esperanto-like instead of talking to me? All right. That's a good idea. So we're talking about Esperanto today. Humphrey Tonkin is with us here in studio. Aaron Piotowski, an administrator at Lairnu.net, is with us. Also, just about to join us is Chuck Smith, the founder of Esperanto Wikipedia, also the team leader of Duolingo's Esperanto course. We'll tell you all about that in just a second. But, you know, Humphrey, one thing we didn't really say was why – why it didn't really work, why, well, as why Zamenhof's dream of what Esperanto could be didn't happen. Now, one possibility is it just wasn't ever going to happen, wasn't meant to happen. But there were some things that kind of militated against uh, Esperanto becoming a universal language. What were they? Well, I think above all, nationalism. Mm -hmm. This was a period of great optimism in the late 19th century. But of course, that optimism was dashed by what happened at the beginning of the 20th century. So many of those people who felt that we might end up with some kind of authentically internationalized world um, found themselves in a totally different situation. I think it's principally that. And language, of course, is about power. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a language, you have power. And if you have a language and you have power, you're not about to give either of those two things up. Um, so uh, we are going to um, add to this conversation Chuck Smith. Um, Chuck Smith is uh, – well, you know, and even before – no, I, we'll start with Chuck actually. So Chuck Smith, as I said, uh, is the founder of Esperanto Wikipedia and the team leader of Duolingo's Esperanto course. Um, Chuck Smith, let's start with Wikipedia. Wikipedia obviously is, is a, a crowdsourced phenomenon. Um, does that mean – could you just – were you allowed to just sort of start – Esperanto Wikipedia? Did you have to have to ask Jimmy Wales permission, or I mean, how does that even work? So it's funny you mention that because um, I came into it at September, and then the next month I was already um, like getting acquainted with the whole encyclopedia project, and it was pretty fascinating in its first year. And um, and I was looking at the language list, and I ran across hmm, Esperanto, this language I've been learning for the last nine months or so. So I, I clicked on it, and I saw it said. Um, Chitio Wikipedio as es in Esperanto. This Wikipedia is in Esperanto. So it had those two sentences and with the Esperanto sentence with two grammatical errors in it, which I'm <laughs> sure you could just hear yourself. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, it really jangled me when you said it that way. <laughs> right, exactly. So, so, um, so you so begin... I, did, um, yeah, I called um, um, Jimmy... Uh, I, I wrote Jimmy asking him about um, like translating the interface. Mm. And he did call me back about a week later. But it was um, quite fortunate at the beginning of the project because there was someone else called Stefano Kalb, who was actually who had actually been writing his own encyclopedia in Esperanto since 1995, and I convinced him to transfer all of his articles over into the Wikipedia. So we had a foundation from the very beginning of 150 articles to start our project. How many articles are there now? Ooh, over 200,000. Um, how does that compare with, I mean, that's, um, you know, obviously nothing close to what there would be in the English Wikipedia. I mean, are, is, the, is the Esperanto Wikipedia bigger than some smaller natively spoken languages? Certainly. Uh, I don't know the um, statistics right now. I know for quite a long time it was close to Danish. Mm. Um, the, first, the first two years it was in existence, it was actually one of the top five in, uh, Wikipedias. And for one week, it even passed the German Wikipedia in size. So, no, Humphrey, you know, Wikipedia in some ways is very Zamenhofian in the sense that it's decentralized. It is a utopian experiment in its own way, this idea that without a whole lot of hierarchy, people can create knowledge, can create information, and then curate it. Um, 
like all utopian experiments, it has ways in which it can kind of go off the rails. And I would imagine that if you allowed yourself to become involved in this, you'd be spending a lot of time, you know, rewriting various <laughs> Wikipedia entries uh, in in uh, um, in Esperanto. But I mean. I, I, I assume you agree anyway that something like this is something that Zamenhof probably would have liked. Absolutely. Um, you know, he um, he created a network of local representatives all across the world. Mm. And um, and in a sense, what he was doing was um, was creating the Internet before Al Gore invented it. Mm -hmm. um, so um, so 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 he had he had um, the the things that we have at our disposal today, um, the language would have um, would have taken off in ways that it, of course, couldn't at the time. And um, Aaron, I I'm assuming also from Lerny's point of view, it's incredibly useful to have something like an Esperanto Wikipedia to direct people to if they want up-to-the-minute information about certain things. It is. Um, it, it depends what they want information on. What, what I often actually end up rec recommending it for is vocabulary. It's something you wouldn't think, but... Because Wikipedia has articles on kind of every topic and also up-to-date topics and also topics that people are actually talking about and um, new, new technologies or just all of these things, um, if the dictionaries seem to disagree on what to call something, I often recommend that people look at the Wikipedia entry because I know in most cases more than one person has looked at it. It's been discussed. It's, you know, sort of being updated as we speak. It's not a, some dictionary from the 1920s. And that's actually a frequent suggestion that I make. Um, now, Chuck, for people who don't know about Duolingo, first of all, explain what that is. Yeah, so Duolingo is a, a website where you can uh, learn any language for free. Well, mm -hmm. the language that they offer, that is. Uh, they offer about uh, 14 languages at the moment, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and you um, go through the lessons and you learn words by translating sentences. So every word has at least three example sentences, and as you progress through the skills, it also has a game-like feel to it. So you're progressing and like, oh, I just finished the lesson, I get 10 XP, and then, oh, level up. So it has this real feel, and you have a leaderboard where you're competing with your friends. So, and also every sentence has its own uh, discussion thread. So if you don't understand something that's going on, you can just ask um, about that question, about that sentence to someone else. And they'll come along, and someone will come along and uh, give you an explanation of what's going on that you might not be understanding. Um, so, um, I, by the way, Ray from Hamden, just hold on the line. I, I will get to you in just a second. But um, so this is this is very close to being brand new, right, Chuck? I mean, this the Esperanto Duolingo just went out when? How many days ago? It went out two weeks ago and already has twenty five thousand people um, registered learning Esperanto on it. And and so, Aaron, as an administrator on another Esperanto site, do you view this as competition or synergy? We view it as synergy. We don't we don't view any Esperanto learning website as competition, simply because we think that each website has something different to offer. For example, Learning is available in forty languages. Currently, um, Duolingo is presently only available for English speakers. Um, but the, but the more important thing is. We offer courses at different levels. We offer um, a community. And the way that we envision it, people can go back and forth between Duolingo and Delerno. And we see that Duolingo's Esperanto version is getting a lot of publicity, and we see that as positive for us as well. All right. Um, I'm just going to pop you on hold for a second because I need to free up the line uh, for Ray in Hamden. Hi, Ray. You're on the air. Hi. Um, 
two questions for uh, your various guests. One is, why a romance-based language like um, Esperanto rather than a German-based language like Volapük? And the second is, if you're going to learn, or rather than learn some crackpot language, why not basic English <laughs> or simplified English? Language are Languages that... Um, have fewer than a thousand words and are already basically within the program of almost any educational system worldwide. Crackpot language, Ray? Do you really want to go there with our guests? Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, why not be peeking? All right. Uh, well, Humphrey, uh, go ahead. Where do we begin? Yeah. My goodness. Um, on the question of crackpot languages, I freely admit that I am a crazy person. <laughs> but um, he but. Isn't. But the um, but the reality is that the language is useful, and and if you can't get to that point, then um, then there's not a lot to talk about. As far as whether that language is entirely neutral is concerned, that's a bigger issue. Yes, the language is heavily based on Romance languages, though not exclusively so. The problem is that if you were to come up with a language that has a little bit of every language in the world in it, uh, you wouldn't get past first base. So. You have to make some decisions of that kind up front. Um, there have been lots of so-called languages that have been created over the years uh, with all kinds of different base, um, some of them German-based or Teutonic-based or Germanic-based or however you want to describe it. Um, but the reason why Esperanto has been successful, I think, is not linguistic. It is the fact that Zamenhof, unlike all the inventors of other languages, saw at the very beginning that that what he had created was something that would be built on by the community of speakers of Esperanto. So he sort of gave away his rights at the very beginning and said, this language belongs to the community of people who speak Esperanto. And it sort of took off from there. So open source, as they say. Open uh, source, uh, indeed. On, yeah. so, and Chuck, you know, just to um, embellish Humphrey's point, too, about, or, or to answer Ray's somewhat antagonistic question about uh, English, um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding of Duolingo is that its original purpose is to help people learn English because – I mean to help people learn English spe specifically because English is so incredibly hard to learn. Right. That is one of the main purposes of um, Duolingo because um, Louis van On, the CEO and founder of Duolingo, saw that uh, people wanted to learn English to um, be able to get uh, better jobs, to be able to you know, make more money for themselves. And he saw the problem being that people wanted to learn English to get uh, better jobs, and yet all these courses cost money, so they end up spending money to try to earn money, and the, the system just didn't work. Um, and, and I think, well, so, and also, I mean, uh, if you were going to pick a universal language, I mean, obviously English is kind of winning. It's winning in lots of different ways. I mean, it won Humphrey um, probably after World War II for reasons that, that have nothing to do, obviously, with the existence of the Internet. But then, now it turns out on the Internet it's English and Chinese, and then Span you drop way down before you get to Spanish. And then after Spanish, you drop way, way, way down before you get to anything else, right? Yeah, and when I talked about repurposing Esperanto, when it started out, there was a real need for an international language because mm. one didn't exist. Um, today, English is very widely used. So I see Esperanto actually as much more like an alternative language. It's a language that, um, that has a community that goes along with it. And um, I want to be a part of that community because it's an internationalized community. Um, 
there, um, I'm interested in knowing from both. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Aaron. Um, do you know who's coming to Esperanto now? I mean, do you, if in fact new people register on the site, um, they're obviously not doing it for the same people, try to, same reason people try to learn English uh, on Duolingo so they can get a better job. Um, so, do we know sort of who they are, what age they are, or or why why Esperanto? Why now? Yeah, it's it's. Um it's heavily concentrated in, let's say, the mid to late teens and the 20s, and then it drops off some in the 30s. Um, but, you know, it's not so different. Humphrey and I both learned kind of in our mid-teens. Chuck, I think, later teens. Um, it's, it's sort of a golden time to learn a language. You, you're kind of interested. You're exploring the world. You're maybe feeling a little more idealistic. We do have users of all ages. We have users in their 70s, users in their 80s, um, really all ages. But the sort of late teens to early to mid-20s is kind of the core group. And Chuck, in two weeks of Duolingo, it's kind of hard to probably get much of a measurement or even an anecdotal sense. But do you have any idea where all these 25,000 people are coming from, why they're wanting to do this? Well, it seems like a lot of people are coming in exactly for that uh, language advantage you gave, um, you listed earlier, because people learn that if they learn Esperanto, they can get ahead in another language so much faster. So many people are coming in for that um, just immediate benefit right now. I'm also finding a lot of people, they're just, you know, they're just Duolingo users, and they say, oh, a new language came up, and what is this? And, well, okay. And, oh, easiest language? Oh, I don't believe that. So I'm hearing a lot of people, they, they go in and they just, like, okay, I'll try the first lesson. They try the first lesson, and then they're hooked. They're like, this language is so easy and logical, and they just can't stop. And then I look, I look in their comment of saying they just want to try the first lesson. I see they're like level six or seven, and I'm like, okay. Well, you know, Humphrey, the another part of Esperanto, the way that I understood it anyway, was that there was sort of a face-to-face quality to it, that people would meet and go to conventions and go to meetings and things like that. And and I wonder if there are, are there Esperanto purists who, who regret the migration of it out onto the digital landscape? Oh, I think there certainly are. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a what would one call it, a traditional Esperanto movement that is out there going along the way it's been going on for years and years and years. There's also, of course, those people who who actually regret that people are actually learning their secret <laughs> language. <laughs> and, um, and, and I'm delighted that, that that attitude at least is, is, is getting undermined by what's going on on the, on the web. But yeah, there are certainly people who, um, who, who have their, their own notion of the, the, of, of the way Esperanto used to be and, and regret that it isn't like that anymore. You know, Chuck, one of the reasons that uh, that we got interested in this show was the terrific article in The Verge uh, about this somewhat tech-driven renaissance uh, uh, for Esperanto. And one of the things that intrigued me about it, too, was, you know, we just we talked about open source uh, before, the way it, it kind of is open source. Um, and But it also I was intrigued by the idea that somehow or other it fits into the lifestyle of couchsurfing, you know, the kind of almost pre-Airbnb idea that you want to visit someplace, you don't know anybody in that place, that, that somehow or other Esperanto fits into this idea of a kind of niche hospitality as, as people travel the world. Does, is that, does it ring true, what was, was said in that article? 
uh, it's definitely true for me because I know when I was learning Esperanto, I was thinking like, what what practical purpose does it have? I don't know. And um, and I ran across Passport de Servo, and then I ran across a free Esperanto course, and I said, well, I'm going to Germany, and like next year. So if I know it, I can stay with someone there. And I've also heard it the other way around of people who enjoy Passport de Servo as a host. I know a for example, a couple in Manhattan. You can imagine in Manhattan how many guests they would get from all around the world. Right. You should you should probably ex- explain what Passport de Servo is. Oh yeah. So Passport de Servo is a um, is a hospitality network, something like couchsurfing, but um, it started in the 60s, and um, and people Esperanto speakers can stay with other Esperanto speakers around the world, and therefore. But having two advantages, one, you have the financial advantage of not having to stay in a hotel or hostel, but you also have the personal advantage of being able to get to know either, I mean, I've had two experiences. One is you stay with a student, and then you get the experience of what it's like being a student in that country, or you tend to get the family experience where you're actually feeling like what it's like to like live with a family, like like you would have an exchange program, but you can do this in over, say, I think, 120 countries around the world. Aaron I'm, Aaron, I'm assuming that this is also something that you've seen, too, that this, just facilitating a certain kind of travel where any place you go, whether you know somebody there or not, you, with quote marks around it, know somebody there. It is. It is certainly the case. In fact, Esperanto has been doing it for more than 100 years. I remember reading an old thing from the 20s or something about meeting your hospitality guest at the train station. It's a little like visiting a very distant cousin. You don't know this person, you didn't know this person existed, but you told your aunt that you were going to be visiting Taiwan next year, and she says, oh, we have a cousin there, and you go stay with the cousin. Mm. Uh, It's it's a lot like that. And so when I travel, um, I go online, I I go to Lernu, I look at the database, and I see who lives in the city that I'm going to visit. Or I find their local Esperanto association, and so I've you know, in Taiwan, in uh, India, in all over Europe, I've stayed with people. And in fact, one one place I stayed, they had a it was a local Esperanto club in Taiwan, and I believe they had a photograph up on the wall, and I saw Chuck in it. So <laughs> well, people get around to the same places. It's kind of cool. Humphrey's picture is on the wall of every Esperanto household in the world. So, um, all right, we have to take a quick break here. We'll come back with the future of Esperanto after this. <laughs> Ni profitula momentum, chala vivonea tendas, estas tiel, estas tiel. Learning Esperanto seems like a big waste of time, and it would cut into the hours I spent writing BDSM Iron Man fan fiction. Today's show was produced by Lydia Brown and me, Kion Wolf. Our interns are Alex Dubin, Allison Ehrenreich, and Hallie St. Germain. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff tasting the 2014 Esperantonian Chardonnay, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, Wendell Wallach predicts the future. And now... 
back to Colin. Yeah, I've even heard that because of global warming, you know, the Esperanto wines, they're like the new Napa, really. You know, Napa's getting too hot. Um, all right, so uh, we're talking about Esperanto. Our, if you have questions, 860-275-7266. Our remaining guests are um, Humphrey Tonkin, uh, University Professor of Humanities at the University of Hartford and the former president slash pope of the Universal Esperanto Association. Uh, Chuck Smith is the founder of Esperanto Wikipedia. He's also the team leader of Duolingo's Esperanto course. Chuck, I wanted to start with you and just ask you whether you see new ways of kind of staging Esperanto on the Internet. I mean, it seems as though one of the things that the Internet uh, and digital culture has fostered anyway is globalism, just a lot of people being in touch with one another. And and as we were saying before, on the Internet, I mean, English rules, Chinese is catching up, Spanish is bubbling down under there at, in third place. Do you, seek a different, do you see a different kind of role for Esperanto than what it has right now? I can definitely see the community getting a lot bigger. And I find it interesting because some people from the, say, the old world of the Esperanto are saying these people need to learn about the movement when they get out of the course. But yet I see, like, people are communicating and they're already setting up their, like, Facebook group or they're chatting on Skype and they're finding their own ways to use Esperanto without the traditional um, ways available. And Humphrey, I'm also one example I read somewhere. I don't even remember where it was, but that you know, imagine two people, one of them who speaks Turkish, one of them who speaks Finnish. Well, there may not be a lot of linguistic roots that they have in common. For one of them to learn the other's language would be extraordinarily difficult. Um, but if they could somehow or other use a common language that isn't English to communicate, it, once again, Esperanto would seem to hold out some kind of hope there. Right, and it, it would put them, of course, in a position of equality. Mm-hmm. Of one way or another, um, with a language that they can learn very easily, right? There so is, it makes sense. There's something inherently. There's a little something a little bit in, uh, imperialistic about saying, "Well, why don't you just learn English?" Because well, the, that's true. You've declared yeah. a winner at that point. Right? Well, and furthermore, you have you have said, in effect, English culture and the the English way of English speaking way of doing things is the culture that I'm going to adopt. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the the fact is that globalization has. Um, has has tend to homogenize us all, and it would be rather nice if if we could avoid some of that homogenization. Um, we have uh, precious little time uh, left. Uh, our number is eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. If you have questions, so I want to just come back to what whatever his name is from Hampton said. Um, there, you know, I, and I want both of you to talk about this a little bit. So, so Esperanto is sometimes I think affectionately um, regarded as this province of. Crackpot, I wouldn't say. Crank, maybe, I would say. That there's sort of this idea, anyway, that this is something that people are interested in uh, in, in a very passionate way somewhere on the margins of discourse. So, and, Humphrey, I'm sure you've struggled with various aspects of that terrible prejudice all your life. So, I mean, how does it look to you now? Well, I tend to say to people, transpasution, get over it. <laughs> um, the, um, the reality, of course, is that, that the only thing that, it, that can be regarded as odd about Esperanto is the fact that you speak it. Mm. Um, after that, the way in which you use it um, is, um, is, is, in effect, a perfectly normal thing to do. So somehow or other, people have problems with the notion of, um, of, of speaking another language, particularly speaking what they would describe as a made-up language. Mm-hmm. I would argue that if you have a language around for 130-something years, it's no longer made up. Um, it's a, it's a, a spoken language like any other. 
And it would be really helpful, I think, if people saw Esperanto in that same way. It's a language. And if you learn that language, you can use it. Chuck, uh, you're from a different different, different generation. Um, Humphrey was 14 years old. He didn't know any better when he was learning Esperanto. Um, how? No, first of all, do you perceive any stigma here in 2015 for somebody from your generation? Oh, definitely. I mean, I've definitely said um, I speak. Well, they asked me what languages do you speak, and I, when Esperanto comes up, and they're like, what that dead language? So you definitely still get that today. But I think one thing that's um, really fortunate that is that, like for example, with the Duolingo course launching, is that people are having a lot more respect toward the language because they see these um, tens of thousands of people learning it. And I've even heard of two other language companies that are going to start publishing an Esperanto course soon. So it's really picking up steam. Well, and I wonder also whether or not the kind of, um, I mean, accompanying digital culture, uh, Chuck, was the rise of for want of a better word, nerd culture. I mean, I grew up as a sort of a comic book nerd, but I didn't even really know any other comic book nerds. So I was a lonely comic book nerd. But what we certainly have seen now is that that if you're interested in something in, in maybe a slightly nerdy way, it's really easy to find other people and that nerds are beginning to rule the world. And, and so, and, and certainly in a world where people are making an effort to learn Klingon or Elvish or, you know, some of these other languages that were created specifically for or either fantasy books or movies, it does seem as though learning Esperanto seems a little less geeky than, than it might have 20 years ago. Definitely. I'm definitely seeing that. And, um, and I'm definitely seeing different kinds of people come in now. For example, I remember I was looking at a, a thread the other day on our um, Duolingo Facebook group, and it got derailed by a talk, by talk about crocheting. You know, this, I've never seen this happen before. <laughs> So it's really interesting seeing the new kinds of people coming in as well. Right. Once you get the crocheting community involved, you're on your way to becoming the hottest club in town. There's no question about that. (laughs) Hey, we want to thank Chuck Smith. Check out uh, Duolingo's Esperanto course if any of this got you excited. Uh, And thanks very much to, I mean, we would never have dreamed of doing this show without Humphrey Tonkin. He is the former president of the Universal Esperanto Association. Aaron Pieteski is an administrator at Lernu.net. Thanks to everybody who helped out today, especially Lydia Brown, who undertook this journey into Esperanto. Kion, <laughs> <laughs> it's been two hours, and you're still watching the Esperantonian Kathy Lee Gifford? <laughs> I am laughing that my life has come to this.